have a good question for you to get your brain going this morning. What is the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? One you see later, the other one you see in a little while. Right? Thank you. Dad jokes aside, there are actually many differences between alligators and crocodiles. Alligators are dark green or black. Crocodiles are a lighter color, mostly gray tones. Crocodiles have V-shaped snouts opposed to alligators, which are more U-shaped snouts. But what I find really fascinating, this will help lead us into the text this morning, is that they have vastly different salt tolerances, despite the fact that their anatomy is pretty similar. For example, alligators are a freshwater species. They can't survive in salt water. They can only live in freshwater, meaning they live in lakes and rivers and such. Whereas crocodiles have a more developed lingual salt gland. I had to Google that. It allows them to survive in salt water. It allows them to tolerate highly salty water, even the ocean. Which tells us that the saltiness of water doesn't matter to crocodiles. And it matters significantly to alligators. To an alligator, it thrives in one environment. A crocodile can survive anywhere. What I'd like to submit to you this morning is you're meant to be an alligator. But we'll get there. As we lean into this idea this morning, what we're going to find is this idea of salt water and fresh water isn't just a physical reality, it's a biblical metaphor. James 3, James uses this idea of fresh water and salt water to talk about the source of our tongues, like the source of our mouths, like the source of a river. You keep going backwards up a river, you find out where it starts. And you'd get from the heart, come, what comes from the heart flows out the mouth. So this morning as we turn back into James 3, we'll be moving upstream from our discussion of our mouths and into a conversation about wisdom, and specifically about wisdom that is godly. Wisdom that finds its source in the nature, the character of God, versus wisdom, thinking that is worldly, fleshly, even demonic. And to recognize that the call to maturity in Jesus Christ looks like practicing godly wisdom. So as we head into the text this morning, Let's pray about our time in His Word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we're thankful to be gathered in the name of Your Son. Father, we ask that You would grant us understanding and insight into Your Word this morning, that by Your mercy and by Your grace, we would see the fullness of the salvation that You've granted us in Christ that we might understand that as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. And that you've defeated the power of sin in our lives. That we would know that you've given us a new freedom in Christ that allows us to pursue maturity. Father, would you protect our hearts this morning against an evil one who would always seek for us to misunderstand your word, who would seek us to believe that we have to perform to please you, that we have to seek being good enough rather than understanding the gospel which reminds us of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ for sinners. Father, would you use your word this morning to grow us up? Would you use it to mature us 
that we might attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Help us to be mature people, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the book of James, written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, whom I would remind you in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus, having died and having been buried, was resurrected and appeared to many, including James. James, who had not previously believed in Jesus, the gospel testifies to that, but James encounters the resurrected Jesus, and it changes everything for him, including his belief in Jesus, his half-brother. He comes to think that this guy he grew up with was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. And this marks the rest of James' life as he principally becomes the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. That's no small calling. So we started this book, as we started into James, we wanted to acknowledge James. We wanted to acknowledge his position. And we thought, and we've said it a week after week, that it's foundational to James's understanding, foundational to James's understanding of the gospel, is that he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. That he builds his life around that, and he builds his faith around that, so that when he come to the book of James, it's a primary understanding then of his book. Not just that you would believe in Jesus, but that you would submit yourself to Jesus. You would serve Jesus. So that we would come to this understanding that this book of James isn't primarily about the gospel, but about gospel implications. That having believed in Jesus, this is what life would look like. This is what maturity growing up in Christ looks like. So we've entitled our series, Portraits of Maturity. That just like I can go home and look at the picture on my dad's wall and see what my grandparents looked like and see my great-grandparents, I can get an idea of what I'm supposed to look like as I get older. That's what the book of James is for us in part, that we would see these pictures of maturity and go, that's what it's supposed to look like to mature in Christ. That's what we're being called to. That's our aim. James gives us these pictures so that we'd be caused to grow up. And so he shows us the suffering brings maturity. James shows us that reading and obeying your Bible brings maturity. He shows us that bridling your tongue brings maturity. And this morning, James is going to show us a portrait of spiritual maturity in wisdom. So let's go ahead and open James 3, verse 1. We'll jump in. James 3, Verse 13, sorry. He starts with a question also. Who is wise and understanding among you? First thing we need to get to is to understand what James means when he talks about wisdom. What's his reference point? It's helpful to note that in the book of James, this isn't his first word on wisdom. You might remember back to chapter 1. James writes, James 1.5. If any of you lacks Wisdom. Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This helps us to see that as James is talking about wisdom, he's using this word in a pretty particular way. 
Because as he pulls in James 3, what he writes in James 1, we should pick up that this wisdom has God as the source, God as the provider, God as the author, God as the one who gives it away and gives it away liberally. So if you think about wisdom, you have to think about what wisdom is. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke calls wisdom skill in the art of living. I've always thought of wisdom as being knowledge rightly applied. For example, I know I should pay my bills. I know I should pay my bills on time. Wisdom then is paying my bills on time. Right? It's applying what I know. So if we understand that wisdom comes from God, He gives it to us, we get to this understanding that wisdom is actually a a great deep picture where God grants us knowledge and gives us the ability to follow through on it. He grants us what we need to apply what we know, that we might live godly. That's what James is going to testify to us. That this knowledge that we need for the Christian life is paired with the power to follow through with it in Christ. So that we would see and understand from James 1 that this wisdom is free if we ask Him. This wisdom which He gives generously and without reproach. Meaning there aren't any catches. There's no hidden payment. There's not an extra cost. So beloved as believers... We ought to acknowledge how huge that is. That the great creator God who made everything not only reveals himself in creation that we would have general revelation, but also gives us special revelation. That is his word that we might know him and understand his character. And on top of that, God has now promised us that he'll grant us wisdom when we ask for it. So he'll give us the knowledge we need and the ability to follow through on it. That we might live rightly. And he's promised he'll do that freely and abundantly. So let's bring that back to chapter 3. Back to the question. He'll give us a fuller picture. Who is wise and understanding? Is in how do we know who is wise? The last part of verse 4. 13 will clarify that for us. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let's unpack that. Who is wise and understanding? What is the evidence of this wisdom? How do we know what that looks like? James answers, you want to know who's wise? Watch his life. Watch her life. By their good works, the term that James clarifies for us in James 2. We've got to keep using James to define James. Good works don't save us. They don't earn favor with God. They don't make up for our shortcomings. Beloved, none of those are the gospel. Good works are the testimony to the reality of our salvation. They're the evidence that proves that if we love Jesus, we believe in Jesus, it flows out of us. It's evidence. And James adds another nuance. 
that our good conduct would show our works and the meekness of wisdom. So what is meekness? Well, again, let's use the Bible to define the Bible. I've said several times, the book of James is in many parts a commentary on the Sermon of the Mount. So we would be wise for us to take the Sermon on the Mount and let us import that into this conversation. In Matthew 5, 5, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is uplifting the meek. Other translations use the word humble. Those who'd be willing to submit themselves underneath something. You want to know what that looks like? Jesus gives a really good illustration of it 11 verses later in Matthew. What does it look like to be meek or humble? Consider Matthew 5.16 as our illustration. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Consider Jesus' point. Let your light shine. Let it shine before others in such a way. Jesus is calling you to live out your faith. To live it out. And live it out in such a way that when people see you, they think Jesus. They see you and they think Jesus. Which is they're not seeing you. They're not giving you their credit. They're not thanking you. I want you to see this as a picture of meekness. Because oftentimes we, and by we I mean me, live in such a way where we like to get credit for all the stuff we do. We love credit. Oh man, I did that. That was my idea. You would not believe what I came up with. Pam's laughing because I do this to her from time to time. Pam, I just need to tell you, not everybody knows this is my idea, but I just need somebody to know it's my idea. It's like the opposite of meekness. What Jesus is illustrating for us here is that we would live in such a way that our light would shine out, people would see that light, and they'd worship Jesus. This week in preparation, I read the definition of meekness and wanted to share it with you. I don't know that it's particularly Christian, but we'll apply it to Christ. Meekness is essentially an attitude or quality of heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit without restraint to the will and desire of someone else. Now, when applied to Jesus Christ, that's an exceedingly biblical definition. Meekness is... An attitude, it's a quality of heart whereby a person is willing to accept and submit without resistance to the will of God. To the will of Jesus. Now we got to put all this together back into James. we got to back it all back through because James is about submission. It's about being a servant to Christ. 
To understand meekness is that attitude of willingly serving Christ in such a way that you want Christ to be exalted. You want Christ to be uplifted. You want Christ to be worshipped and glorified. So that people would see your life and they wouldn't think about how great Ben is. They'd think about how great Jesus is. It's meekness. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I think influence, I think James influenced by Jesus would say that the one who in humility and meekness is rightly submitted to Christ such that his word is worth hearing and obeying and is producing in good works. Good works are being produced in his life that are not about us, they're about him. That's, that's wisdom. I, I think he's pointing us to this understanding of wisdom when it's our lives rightly submitted to Jesus Christ and letting him rule over every part of our lives. Says that we're willing to submit everything to Him. We submit our marriage to Him. You want to think about how you treat your spouse? You better run that through the filter of humility and meekness of wisdom and a submission to Jesus Christ. You think about how you parent your kids. You better run that through the filter of submission to Jesus Christ. An attitude where He rules, He reigns. It's not about me. It's about him. You want to think about how you engage your neighbor. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about my humility to understand I serve him. He's the master. I'm nothing but the messenger. You want to know how to go to work. I mean, we could play this through a hundred thousand different ways. James is putting before us this picture who is wise and understanding? The one who's rightly submitted to Jesus Christ and is living out that submission. So what's the opposite of that? In this passage, James gives us that too. And to be honest, it's not pretty. Listen carefully, verse 14. He's going to contrast right biblical living, a right understanding of submission to Christ to this. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He's setting up a contrast. On one hand, you have rightly submitted to God. On the other hand, when you think of bitter jealousy, when you think of selfish ambition, here's the contrasting question. Who is ruling your life? Who's in charge? Whose reputation are you concerned about? Who is the Lord? 
you are. You're predominantly thinking about you. Beloved, I I earnestly think we dramatically underestimate how entirely selfish we are. And I think this text wants to bring that to light for us a little bit. Bitter jealousy. By the way, the word bitter here is a play off the word for bitter water, which he used earlier. We rendered it salt water, but he's playing on words here. This salty, we could call it crocodile jealousy if I wanted to carry out the metaphor. But a bitter jealousy is I deserve what you have. I'm mad about it. I'm angry. I'm disheveled. Whether it's your possession, your job, or your honor, I'm bitter about it because I should have it. I deserve it. I am the focus. I need glory. I need honor. I need you looking at me. Selfish ambition. You know be really good at that? Me. You should be in charge of that? Me. You could do a way better job of running that? Me. I should be in charge. I should be in control. What James is doing here in this section is pointing to the reality that contrasting Jesus and being submitted to Jesus is this reality that we don't submit to Jesus. In fact, we strive to rule our life. And consider the source, verse 15. This wisdom does not come from above. It's not God the Father telling you to focus on you. It's not God the Father telling you to worry about your needs. It's not God the Father telling you about what you deserve. This wisdom does not come from above. It comes from fleshly, unspiritual, and demonic things. It doesn't come from reading and obeying your Bible. It's earthly. Another word might be fleshly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. Beloved, I think we need to be reminded regularly that Satan is whispering in our ears. Whispering to us about what we deserve. Whispering to us about how important we are. Whispering to us about our role, our rights. I think we have to be so, so very very careful about that because he's whispering to us, helping and ultimately hoping that we will lay claim to the throne of our own lives. Satan is pushing you to concentrate on you, think about you, focus on you, even worship you. What's the fruit of that? Verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. When you are the king, sin abounds. When you sit on the throne of your own life, there will be disorder and sin will abound. It's not a pretty picture. 
There's nothing edifying about that. The Bible wants us to look in the mirror to see the reflection and go, that's gross. We don't want to pursue that. So what's the fruit of godly wisdom? James will give us that also, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Beloved, be reminded that wisdom, which the Lord gives freely and without reproach, that wisdom that comes from the Father through Jesus Christ the Son has an impact. It gives us seven things according to this text. Seven things we should acknowledge are exceedingly similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So that we should see that the fruit of submitting to Jesus brings about purity or holiness. It brings about an understanding that we've been set apart. That though we've been theologically set apart, we've been redeemed, we've been justified, we've been sanctified, that that spiritual transformation would have a literal, physical transformation in our lives, that we have been set apart, so we live set apart. We live out the realities of who God says we are, we live that out, and it's pure, it's holy. It's peace-loving. We're called to be a people who love peace. James, on three different occasions, is going to go after people who quarrel, people who are divisive, people who incite. It's not who we're intended to be. We're lovers of peace. We're gentle. We're open to reason. Full of mercy. Good fruits. Impartial. And sincere. Leading to a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Beloved, if we put this whole passage together, we would see that godly wisdom, or if you allow Ben's expanded definition, rightly submitting your life to Jesus Christ and obeying Him, Living out the knowledge that you have in Christ brings peace. Exalting in yourself, living in the flesh, brings disorder. So if I'm honest with you, I work through this passage. I do all of them. I get to the end and I start thinking through, what do we do with this word? How do we apply it? What does application look like? And immediately I'm brought to this place to go, Lord, I want this, but I'm not this. Lord, and I don't understand why I'm that. I don't understand why it is that it seems like, according to this, most of my life I feel like I'm in rebellion according to this. I, 
I don't feel like I'm choosing peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. I don't feel that coming out of me. I feel like I'm falling short. So, so what do I do with this? What do we do with all these passages? Beloved, I think we appreciate that what James is pushing us towards here, he's calling us upward here, is a, an understanding of spiritual maturity. That in all of these texts, we would see a continuum between totally doesn't get it to totally gets it, we're all in the middle. That we're in this process of being matured. And beloved, I think the first thing we need to recognize is that there are areas in my life I do submit to Jesus Christ. There are areas in my life I do submit to Jesus Christ. We need to acknowledge that. We should celebrate that. God is praiseworthy for the fact He's taken some struggles away from me. He's praiseworthy for that. God has accomplished things in my life I never thought He would. He rules and reigns over very particular parts of my life. I go, God, I didn't used to want that. Now I want that. And that's amazing. God, you're so good. And I think we need to acknowledge that there are areas in our lives when we desire to sit on the throne. And friends, I think that's true for every single one of us. Every single one of us. And so similar to last week, I would just encourage us in the gospel to recognize that the distinctive to fall in Christ is not that you don't sin. It's not that you don't fall short. It's what do you do when you do sin? What do you do when you do fall short? But this is where we get refreshed. This is where we get washed. This is where we get built up in gospel hope. To recognize Romans 8.1, in Christ Jesus there is now no condemnation. So James isn't writing this, that you would sit here and go like, I'm horrible, I'm terrible, why am I even trying? That's, that's not what happens here. I think James is writing this so that you would recognize that there's some parts of your life you're rightly submitted to God and you'd worship Him for it. And there's some parts of your life that you're not. And that you would be willing to confess that. And confess it specifically to God the Father. But we need to have in our understanding, and our operational theology, that God knows who you are. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows where you're excelling and He knows where you're falling apart. And like a daddy with a little child, honesty is a really good thing. Just to be able to say, Dad, blowing it here. Father, I I don't understand this part of my life. I don't understand. I, I can confess to you pragmatically about Ben that I'm very selfish about my time. I'm very selfish about my energy. I'm praying through this in my own life and going, you know what? There are times in my life where I think I deserve a break. At 9.30 when one of my kids yells, Dad, can you give me a glass of water? I'm like, no, I'm done. 
I'm finished. Checked out. And selfishness rules in my heart. About to get in bed. Tired. I'm in my own mind. It's bedtime. And Pam says, hey, will you run to the car and get my glasses? I'm like, no. Get your own glasses. I'm, t- I'm confessing sin before you. I mean, it's funny. Because I'm a hideous sinner. But there are seasons and there are parts of my life that I don't yield fully to the Father. And I live in this very selfish, Ben-focused place. And I think we ought to be able to acknowledge that to God who knows that about us already. To be able to turn to the Father. Say, Lord, there are times in my life I'm able to yield myself totally to you. And I'm thankful for that. And Father, there are times and seasons when I'm so selfish and so self-focused, and so built around accommodating me, would you forgive me? And if you aren't sure, and, and perhaps if you haven't thought through the practice of confessing your sins specifically, it's a really good thing. I would encourage you to pray the prayer of Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, if you don't have that underlined in your Bible, underline in your Bible. Then I'd look at the screen for a second and recognize, do you see the hope in that? Because the psalmist here isn't writing like, show me my sin that you might smite me mercifully. No, it's God, show me my sin and lead me in the way everlasting. I might be built up, I might be encouraged. You might do another good work in me. You might remove this other thing from me. I'm not sure you can. Beloved, we need to be reminded God is not caught off by our sin. He knows our shortcomings. And he's honored and glorified when we confess it. And we need to cling to this great promise of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. John is encouraging you, go to the Father with your sin and know that He's going to be faithful in the dealing with your sin. He's going to forgive you and He's going to cleanse you and He's going to give you back His righteousness. Beloved, we need to be encouraged. We need to be edified in the gospel to know and to understand that maturity is knowing that you will fall short. And when you do, you run to your Savior who has forgiven you and will cleanse you. I've said this many times before. My mom did this little needlepoint and had it on my wall as a kid. I I never got it as a kid. I didn't understand it. I get it because it's in my son's room now. There's a little needlepoint that said, be patient with me 
God isn't finished with me yet. And I think that was a little note to my mom to be patient with me because God's still at work. You know, someday Ben won't always wet the bed. It was an encouragement to her. But I think there's a spiritual encouragement that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Beloved, we are all in process of being called up to maturity. But I think the last place we need to end this morning, the last thing we need to theologically, biblically own, is we need to practice James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. Such that James has laid out for you. If you fall short, confess. He's going to be really, he's going to be faithful. He's going to be just. He's going to forgive your sins. If you lack wisdom, ask him. He'll grant it to you. He's given us a, a picture of spiritual maturity that we might be intentional and purposeful with our gracious and generous Father who's promised He'll give us wisdom generously and without approach. So let's pray. Father, in James 3, James lays out a contrast. Godly wisdom fully submitted to Jesus Christ. Worldly wisdom. I sit on my own throne. Father, we worship you and we praise your name that there is stuff in all of our lives that we used to struggle with that we don't anymore. Father, we've gained godly wisdom. We've asked, you've given, we've received good works that are evidence of our faith in you are being expressed in our lives. God, we worship you for that. What a tremendous testimony it is to us to think back through all the things you've brought us through. That it might give us hope for all the things you haven't. Father, we want to come to you as a people who, who read your word and do it. We want to be a people who read your word and obey it. So Father, when we read this, we understand that there are places in our lives that we don't submit ourselves rightly to you. So Father, according to your word, we confess that to you. We confess that we like to rule our lives. Father, would you help us to be intentional about our confession and specific about our confession 
and purposeful about our confession. That we wouldn't be afraid of it. But that we know we could turn to you because you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, we worship you for that forgiveness. We worship you for that cleansing. Finally, Father, we just ask that you would grant us the wisdom that we need in all the areas of our life that we might be rightly submitted to you, that we'd be hearers and readers and studiers of your word, that we would delight in it, we'd find joy in it, we'd find hope in it. Father, you've promised that you will give freely and without reproach. So, Father, we ask that you would grant us this wisdom that we could live for you. This wisdom that you would mature us in every area of our life that we might be fully submitted to your son, Jesus. Thank you so much, God that you are at work in us and that someday you've promised that you'll complete the work. We hope and we glory in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.